chapter twenty one of the birth of tragedy by friedrich nietzsche this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty one gliding back from these hortative tones into the mood which befits the contemplative man i repeat that it can only be learnt from the greeks what such a sudden and miraculous awakening of tragedy must signify for the essential basis of a people's life it is the people of the tragic mysteries who fight the battles with the persians and again the people who wage such wars required tragedy as a necessary healing potion who would have imagined that there was still such a uniformly powerful effusion of the simplest political sentiments the most natural domestic instincts and the primitive manly delight in strife in this very people after it had been shaken to its foundations for several generations by the most violent convulsions of the dionysian demon if at every considerable spreading of the dionysian commotion one always perceives that the dionysian loosing from the shackles of the individual makes itself felt first of all in an increased encroachment on the political instincts to the extent of indifference yea even hostility it is certain on the other hand that the state forming apollo is also the genius of the principium individuationis and that the state and domestic sentiment cannot live without an assertion of individual personality there is only one way from orgasm for a people the way to indian buddhism which in order to be at all endured with its longing for nothingness requires the rare ecstatic states with their elevation above space time and the individual just as these in turn demand a philosophy which teaches how to overcome the indescribable depression of the intermediate states by means of a fancy with the same necessity owing to the unconditional dominance of political impulses a people drifts into a path of extremist secularization the most magnificent but also the most terrible expression of which is the roman imperium placed between india and rome and constrained to a seductive choice the greeks succeeded in devising a classical purity still a third form of life not indeed for long private use but just on that account of immortality for it holds true in all things that those whom the gods love die young but on the other hand it holds equally true that they then live eternally with the gods one must not demand of what is most noble that it should possess the durable toughness of leather the staunch durability which for instance was inherent in the national character of the romans does not probably belong to the indispensable predicates of perfection but if we ask by what physic it was possible for the greeks in their best period notwithstanding the extraordinary strength of their dionysian and political impulses neither to exhaust themselves by ecstatic brooding nor by a consuming scramble for empire and worldly honour but to attain the splendid mixture which we find in a noble inflaming and contemplatively disposing wine we must remember the enormous power of tragedy exciting purifying and disburdening the entire life of a people 
the highest value of which we shall divine only when as in the case of the greeks it appears to us as the essence of all the prophylactic healing forces as the mediator arbitrating between the strongest and most inherently fateful characteristics of a people tragedy absorbs the highest musical orgasm into itself so that it absolutely brings music to perfection among the greeks as among ourselves but it then places alongside thereof tragic myth and the tragic hero who like a mighty titan takes the entire dionysian world on his shoulders and disburdens us thereof while on the other hand it is able by means of this same tragic myth in the person of the tragic hero to deliver us from the intense longing for this existence and remind us with warning hand of another existence and a higher joy for which the struggling hero prepares himself presentiently by his destruction not by his victories tragedy sets a sublime symbol namely the myth between the universal authority of its music and the receptive dionysian hearer and produces in him the illusion that music is only the most effective means for the animation of the plastic world of myth relying upon this noble illusion she can now move her limbs for the dithyrambic dance and abandon herself unhesitatingly to an orgiastic feeling of freedom in which she could not venture to indulge as music itself without this illusion the myth protects us from the music while on the other hand it alone gives the highest freedom thereto by way of return for this service music imparts to tragic myth such an impressive and convincing metaphysical significance as could never be attained by word and image without this unique aid and the tragic spectator in particular experiences thereby the sure presentiment of supreme joy to which the path through destruction and negation leads so that he thinks he hears as it were the innermost abyss of things speaking audibly to him if in these last propositions i have succeeded in giving perhaps only a preliminary expression intelligible to few at first to this difficult representation i must not here desist from stimulating my friends to a further attempt or cease from beseeching them to prepare themselves by a detached example of our common experience for the perception of the universal proposition in this example i must not appeal to those who make use of the pictures of the scenic processes the words and the emotions of the performers in order to approximate thereby to musical perception for none of these speak music as their mother tongue and in spite of the aids in question do not get farther than the precincts of musical perception without ever being allowed to touch its innermost shrines some of them like gervinus do not even reach the precincts by this path i have only to address myself to those who being immediately allied to music have it as it were for their mother's lap and are connected with things almost exclusively by unconscious musical relations i ask the question of these genuine musicians whether they can imagine a man capable of hearing the third act of tristan und isolde without any aid of word or scenery purely as a vast symphonic period without expiring by a spasmodic distension of all the wings of the soul a man who has thus so to speak put his ear to the heart-chamber of the cosmic will who feels the furious desire for existence issuing therefrom as a thundering stream or most gently dispersed brook into all the veins of the world would he not collapse all at once could he endure in the wretched fragile tenement of the human individual to hear the re-echo 
of countless cries of joy and sorrow from the vast void of cosmic night without flying irresistibly towards his primitive home at the sound of this pastoral dance song of metaphysics but if nevertheless such a work can be heard as a whole without a renunciation of individual existence if such a creation could be created without demolishing its creator where are we to get the solution of this contradiction here there interposed between our highest musical excitement and the music in question the tragic myth and the tragic hero in reality only as symbols of the most universal facts of which music alone can speak directly if however we felt as purely dionysian beings myth as a symbol would stand by us absolutely ineffective and unnoticed and would never for a moment prevent us from giving ear to the re-echo of the universalia ante rem here however the apollonian power with a view to the restoration of the well-nigh shattered individual bursts forth with the healing balm of a blissful illusion all of a sudden we imagine we see only tristan motionless with hushed voice saying to himself the old tune why does it wake me and what formerly interested us like a hollow sigh from the heart of being seems now only to tell us how waste and void is the sea and when breathless we thought to expire by a convulsive distension of all our feelings and only a slender tie bound us to our present existence we now hear and see only the hero wounded to death and still not dying with his despairing cry longing longing in dying still longing for longing not dying and if formerly after such a surplus and superabundance of consuming agonies the jubilation of the born rent our hearts almost like the very acme of agony the rejoicing curvenal now stands between us and the jubilation as such with face turned toward the ship which carries isolde however powerfully fellow-suffering encroaches upon us it nevertheless delivers us in a manner from the primordial suffering of the world just as the simple image of the myth delivers us from the immediate perception of the highest cosmic idea just as the thought and word deliver us from the unchecked effusion of the unconscious will the glorious apollonian illusion makes it appear as if the very realm of tones presented itself to us as a plastic cosmos as if even the fate of tristan and isolde had been merely formed and moulded therein as out of some most delicate and impressible material thus does the apollonian wrest us from dionysian universality and fills us with rapture for individuals to these it rivets our sympathetic emotion through these it satisfies the sense of beauty which longs for great and sublime forms it brings before us biographical portraits and incites us to a thoughtful apprehension of the essence of life contained therein with the immense potency of the image the concept the ethical teaching and the sympathetic emotion the apollonian influence uplifts man from his orgiastic self-annihilation and beguiles him concerning the universality of the dionysian process into the belief that he is seeing a detached picture of the world for instance tristan and isolde and that through music he will be enabled to see it still more clearly and intrinsically what can the healing magic of apollo not accomplish when it can even excite in us the illusion that the dionysian is actually in the service of the apollonian the effects of which it is capable of enhancing yea that music is essentially the representative art for an apollonian substance with the pre-established harmony which obtains between perfect drama 
and its music the drama attains the highest degree of conspicuousness such as is usually unattainable in mere spoken drama as all the animated figures of the scene in the independently evolved lines of melody simplify themselves before us to the distinctness of the catenary curve the coexistence of these lines is also audible in the harmonic change which sympathizes in a most delicate manner with the evolved process through which change the relations of things become immediately perceptible to us in a sensible and not at all abstract manner as we likewise perceive thereby that it is only in these relations that the essence of a character and of a line of melody manifests itself clearly and while music thus compels us to see more extensively and more intrinsically than usual and makes us spread out the curtain of the scene before ourselves like some delicate texture the world of the stage is as infinitely expanded for our spiritualized introspective eye as it is illumined outwardly from within how can the word poet furnish anything analogous who strives to attain this internal expansion and illumination of the visible stage world by a much more imperfect mechanism and an indirect path proceeding as he does from word and concept albeit musical tragedy likewise avails itself of the word it is at the same time able to place alongside thereof its basis and source and can make the unfolding of the word from within outwards obvious to us of the process just set forth however it could still be said as decidedly that it is only a glorious appearance namely the aforementioned apollonian illusion through the influence of which we are to be delivered from the dionysian obtrusion and excess in point of fact the relation of music to drama is precisely the reverse the music is the adequate idea of the world drama is but the reflex of this idea a detached umbrage thereof the identity between the line of melody and the lining form between the harmony and the character relations of this form is true in a sense antithetical to what one would suppose on the contemplation of musical tragedy we may agitate and enliven the form in the most conspicuous manner and enlighten it from within but it still continues merely phenomenon from which there is no bridge to lead us into the true reality into the heart of the world music however speaks out of this heart and though countless phenomena of the kind might be passing manifestations of this music they could never exhaust its essence but would always be merely its externalized copies of course as regards this intricate relation of music and drama nothing can be explained while all may be confused by the popular and thoroughly false antithesis of soul and body but the unphilosophical crudeness of this antithesis seems to have become who knows for what reasons a readily accepted article of faith with our aestheticians while they have learned nothing concerning an antithesis of phenomenon and thing in itself or perhaps for reasons equally known have not cared to learn anything thereof should it have been established by our analysis that the apollonian element in tragedy has by means of its illusion gained a complete victory over the dionysian primordial element of music and has made music itself subservient to its end namely the highest and clearest elucidation of the drama it would certainly be necessary to add the very important restriction that at the most essential point this apollonian illusion is dissolved and annihilated the drama which by the aid of music spreads out before us with such inwardly illumined distinctness 
in all its movements and figures that we imagine we see the texture unfolding on the loom as the shuttle flies to and fro attains as a whole an effect which transcends all apollonian artistic effects in the collective effect of tragedy the dionysian gets the upper hand once more tragedy ends with a sound which could never emanate from the realm of apollonian art and the apollonian illusion is thereby found to be what it is the assiduous veiling during the performance of tragedy of the intrinsically dionysian effect which however is so powerful that it finally forces the apollonian drama itself into a sphere where it begins to talk with dionysian wisdom and even denies itself and its apollonian conspicuousness thus then the intricate relation of the apollonian and the dionysian in tragedy must really be symbolized by a fraternal union of the two deities dionysus speaks the language of apollo apollo however finally speaks the language of dionysus and so the highest goal of tragedy and of art in general is attained End of chapter twenty one